digits, you're old. So she tries to fall asleep here in church. Anybody wants to smack her on the head? Go for it. So the last time I was up here, as we're starting through Ephesians, we were talking about blessings involving the sun. We got about halfway through that. Uh, we had already gone through blessings involving the Father. We talked about what predestination actually means versus how it's presented. Talked about being accepted by God. About how God has redeemed us. And we talked about what redemption actually means. We talked about how our redemption was through the blood of Christ and how God has forgiven us. We took the time to define forgiveness, too, and talked about the basis for both forgiveness and redemption being the grace of God. The next part of that was that God has revealed his will to us. There might be somebody out there, maybe not in this room, but they will, well, God knows so much, how would he have done that? Well, he did. He gave us a book, a book that tells us whatever we need to know. And one of the things in there is his will that he revealed to us. Ephesians 1, 9 and 1, 10 says, Having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, he hath, which he hath purchased, purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him. So it says flat out in the scripture that we were told of the word of God that is truthful, that he made known to us the mystery of his will. So that means it happened. As explained by Paul later in this epistle, when we get up to chapter 3, this mystery was not made known unto mankind in other ages. Briefly, out of that, uh, Ephesians 3, 5 says, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. The Lord lets people know what they need to know when he feels they need to know them. And that was the point in time when he decided we needed to know the mystery of his will. It has now been revealed by the Spirit to the apostles and prophets. And we, of course, after that, have our scriptures to fall back on so we can learn about it. Romans 16, 25 through 27 says, Now to him that is of power to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery which was kept secret since the world began, but now is made manifest by the scripture of the prophets according to the commandment of the everlasting God made known unto all nations for the obedience of faith. That obedience of faith is important because a lot of people throughout the world don't like that obedience part. They want to talk about faith only, but the two go hand in hand. Uh, to God only wise be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Amen. So our Lord is making known the mystery of his will, and this is due to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself. He didn't have to uh, tell us that. In fact, his will didn't even have to include our salvation. And that's where the good pleasure comes in. He wants us to have salvation. He doesn't want anybody to be damned. He doesn't want anybody to go to hell, which is why he puts his good will in place so that he can save us from that. So making the known the mystery of his will is due to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself. The scripture tells us that. It pleased God in planning to reveal his will to us, and it pleased God to offer us salvation. 
just as it pleased God in predetermining us to be adopted as sons and daughters in Christ, as it says in Ephesians 1.5. The will of God that is now revealed pertains to what God had planned to accomplish in Jesus Christ. God's plan was to be carried out in the dispensation of the fullness of time, for the period of time when everything is right and ready, or exactly when it ought to happen, because God knows everything that's going on, so he can see the perfect time and way for everything to go down. Galatians 4, 4 and 5 says, When the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. The fullness of time, basically, when everything was how he needed it to be, he made it happen. Because if there's a right and a wrong time, if anybody knows when that is, that's God, being all-knowing and all-powerful. So at the right time, he took care of it. Henderson suggests that the reference to is to the entire New Testament era, and particularly to the period which began with Christ's resurrection and coronation. But not ending until the Lord, upon his glorious return, pronounces and executes judgment. That was in his New Testament commentary. God's plan was to gather together in one all things in Christ. Or in other words, for us to have salvation from our sins through the blood of Jesus Christ. Uh, another commenter says he might gather in one all things in Christ, that the scattered families and tribes of men, both Jews and Gentiles, should all be gathered and united under one head, Christ. They not only men, but angels. And Paul elaborates on this thought in Ephesians 2.16, where he says, And that he might reconcile both to God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby. No matter how many verses you go through and how much talking and debating you do, one thing remains clear. Through the blood of Christ, he's going to unite his people, and we're going to be a family and be with him. In Colossians 1, 19 through 22, it says, For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. And having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him, I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven, and you that were sometimes alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, Yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. That's easy to say, well, wait a minute, holy and unblameable, not me. Well, not of your own merits and not by what you have done and not by the way that you have carried on from beginning to end, birth to death. But through the blood of Christ, that's how you can be presented to the Lord. By the death of Christ, Jews and Gentiles can become one body. By the blood of the cross, God is able to reconcile all things to himself. Reconciliation is that we might be presented holy and blameless and irreproachable in his sight. He's that we're presented because we are still sinners, but we're redeemed sinners. Colossians 1.22 says, In the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable, and unreprovable in his sight. Ephesians 1 4 says, According as he hath chosen us and him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. With all these thoughts together, finally we learn that through his son God has given us an inheritance. Uh, that through his son is key here because the inheritance is available, but it's only available through his son. You can't just get it by any other means. You can't come to the Father 
through any other name but his, but that inheritance is there through Christ. Ephesians 1.11, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will, that we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ. So obtained an inheritance or made a heritage, two different ways it's talked about. Some translations and scholars understand heritage. Understand the verse 11 to read, we were made a heritage, speaking of God's inheritance, with an appeal to verses like 114, where Paul speaks of redemption of the purchased possession. 118, where Paul speaks of his inheritance. Reasons for accepting the rendering found in the KJV are offered by many commentators. Uh, the immediate context speaks of our inheritance, Ephesians 1.14. There's no reason it can't be a little bit of both, because he inherits us back. We inherit the things that he offers us, and at the end of either situation, we're with him in eternity. In the New Testament, the inheritance is ever said to be ours, or intended for us. In places like Acts 20, Galatians 3, Colossians 3, Hebrews 9, 1 Peter 1, and even Ephesians 1.18, where his inheritance can mean that which God is giving to us. So the word, so to say his inheritance could be correct wording, but how is that taken? Does that mean it to be an inheritance that he keeps, or inheritance that's his, that he is inheriting to us? So the words could be either way, depending on what you're translating, but the meaning is what's really important. Ephesians 1.5 speaks of adoption. And in Romans 8, 15-17, Paul connects the idea of adoption with that of being heirs in an epistle with many similarities to Ephesians. Paul certainly speaks of how we are heirs. And if you think about what an heir is, it's a descendant who receives things when the time comes. Colossians 1.12 says, Giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet to be partakers, of the inheritance of the saints in life. Again, that goes back to the fact that we can only get that through Jesus Christ, because there's no other name through which we can get to the Father. This inheritance is part of God's predestination. Just as God, pre God predestinated those, that those in Christ would receive adoption of sons, so he predestinated, Ephesians 1.5, that his sons would receive an inheritance. This is in accordance with God's grand purpose. It was the power to work all things according to the counsel of his will. God meant for us to come back to him through the blood of Jesus Christ. The final result in receiving this inheritance is that we should be to the praise of his glory. That those in Christ and what God has made them will be a reason to give glory to God. As Paul wrote the Thessalonians, that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you. 2 Thessalonians 1.12 Some understand that Paul is now beginning to distinguish between those like himself, being Jewish believers, and those like his readers, Gentile believers, for a reason that we could talk about when we get to Ephesians chapter 2. But Paul speaks of, who for, who, of we who first trusted in that verse. And then he says, you also trusted in verse 13. And there's many different ways that that has been talked about and taken. We could do quite a few lessons on that. But at the end of the day, what matters is, did you believe or did you not believe? Did you do what the Lord said or did you not do what the Lord said? It's not about nationality, heritage, where you were born, or whether or not you 
were a Jew or a Gentile, it's about were you washed in the blood of Christ. But even if so, one cannot make a big deal out of a distinction such as that because of what we just said. It's about whether or not you were redeemed through the blood. Because all that is said in verse 3 through 11, where we is found, which applies to Gentile believers, and all that is said in verses 13 through 14, where you is found, which can apply to Jewish ones. People make a lot of different distinctions, just like many other verses that people grab up. But at the end of the day, in Christ, we have every reason to praise God, knowing that God has redeemed us, God has forgiven us, God has revealed His will to us, and God has given us an inheritance. These are all very, very powerful reasons to praise God. But there is even more, and the lesson that we're going to do next, we're going to examine uh, what that is as we consider blessings involving the Holy Spirit. It's going to be a fun lesson. For the time being, we ask the question we always ask, have you experienced the wonderful redemption, the forgiveness of sins, and everything else that comes from the blood of, of Christ? The Apostle Peter expounds on that in Acts 2, 36-41. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom you have crucified, both Lord and Christ. And when they heard this, they were pricked in their hearts and said unto Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And with many words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this onward generation. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized. It's a really, really good thing that he didn't separate this down to one little group. They heard this, they were pricking their hearts. They said, what shall we do when Peter said, repent and be baptized? He didn't say, well, everybody on the left repent and baptize, the rest of you, I'm sorry about your luck. He didn't say anybody who's a blonde or a redhead or anybody with a beard or anybody without a beard. He just said, all right, you want to know what to do? Repent be baptized. Jesus Christ came. He did what he did, and you need to believe in that and do what he said. And we're extremely lucky that it's not about this group or that group, but about the blood of Christ. We always have an invitation when we're together, and we always make a point that the invitation is not just limited to when doors are open or closed in a church. The invitation is available whenever somebody needs the invitation because Christ doesn't keep office hours. That's just when the door gets unlocked. So as we offer the invitation that's open, no matter what your need may be, whether it's time to become a Christian or anything else that you may need, but we have the invitation as we all sing together.